Good morning. Have you ever taken a two-year-old on a walk? <laughs> Got to do that this weekend. One of my kids' kids, if you catch my drift. So if you're ever going to do this, if you're going to take a two-year-old on a walk, let me give you some advice. Clear your schedule. <laughs> Takes forever. You usually start out with a destination, like, hey, let's, let's go down the street and go to a park. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Pappy, let's do that. And then there's a butterfly that's dying on the sidewalk, and that takes 30 to 45 minutes. And then there's something else, and then we forget what we're doing, and then we decide to run, but not on the street. It goes on and on and on and on. <clears throat> so what you will notice is that these kids, these little ones, for whatever reason, well, I think for every good reason, God's made little ones this way. They are in awe and find it simply amazing just to be a part of a world that they don't understand. And everything's new and everything's awesome. Isn't that great? I mean, it's great unless you have something else to do that day. <laughs> They're in awe. And you might think you've grown out of that. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But then, you know, we get older and we learn how the life works. I'm wondering if we do. I wonder if getting older teaches us how life works. Because you still need to live in awe of something, don't you? There's a guy by the name of Darius uh, Fushu. And actually, Faru. Sorry, I messed up your last name. He's like a low-key, not very popular. Po I hope if he's listening to this, sorry. Um, <laughs> You know, he's just not out there very much, but he's like a life coach, efficiency expert. I just kind of like some of the stuff he says. And he says, this is, this is how we live. This is how we try to find awe in life. We buy stuff we don't need. We go to bed with people we don't love. We try to work hard to get the approval of people we don't like. But at the end of the day, you're lying in your bed thinking, what's next in this endless pursuit of happiness. Who's better off? The two-year-old or us? This is not a defect or a flaw. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into our hearts. Therefore, you find it unacceptable just to be alive. You have to find out why. That's a good thing. But it produces intense emptiness, intense longing, and we have to find out what to do with that, don't we? So we're in week three of Revelations. It's going to speak about this in a very roundabout way, the way Revelations does things. And so I, I want us to be distracted by the right thing. I want us to live in awe of what we should live in awe of. Or, or maybe we shouldn't, I don't know. But Revelations has something for us today because I do know this. I need to live in awe of something. I need to find something greater than myself to give my life to. And so do you. So what's cool about this text, and we started out last week, chapter four, and we got through the first six verses, and we saw... Basically, the risen Christ take John in the spirit into the throne room. But guess what this is like? 
this is like your big brother, the Bible says that about Jesus, taking you on a walk. And John's like a two-year-old. I mean, he does the wrong things. He worships an angel and he's like, well, this is, you know, he tries to scribble it now. He's taking notes and God is superintending this for us so that we, as the church, can live faithfully until the end and conquer. So we're going to go on a walk with John today. We're going to finish that walk, as it were. And we're going to understand a little bit about ourselves and the world around us. It's very simple. Let's not miss it, okay? So let me pray for us, and then we are going to jump right in to chapter 4 of Revelation 6 through 11. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. Um, you are simply amazing. And that word has been so devalued, but I don't know what else to say. You're amazing. Please, in your mercy, open up your word that we might behold your glory today and worship you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Here we go. And if you weren't here last week, we are starting Revelation in chapter 4, and it's essentially making sense. Revelation is making sense of all the powers and the forces at play in your life right now. It's not for some church in the future. It's not for, ch for some church in the past. It's for you right now. And we saw Jesus took John into the throne room, and he sees what looks like temple imagery. There's something on the throne. It looks, it's unapproachable light. There's, there's, there's gems that seem to be refracting the light. There's a rainbow. There's intense glory. That's about as far as we got. So let's keep trucking. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Here we go. Full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature like the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, we learned about them last week, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him. Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For, why? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Great. So you know why we wanted to study Revelation, right? So we can know when the world ends and if aliens are real. We're getting closer. I'm just kidding. This is some good stuff, friend. Uh, two movements today. I'll break it up into two movements, and then we'll try to apply it. The first one is this. Creation finds its fullness in the face of God. You see that right off the bat. And secondly, it's the why. Because God created everything. You're like, isn't that basic Christian 101 doctrine? I thought it was until I read it. And then I guess I don't understand it because I don't respond rightly. So creation finds fullness in God, really in the face of God. And that's because God has created every single thing you 
you see and experience. So let's jump in. I feel like last week we missed, we didn't miss something, but there's only so many minutes, and we kind of jumped over the sea of glass, and I think it's important, and I want to talk about it very briefly. Because just before the text that we jumped into, it says, um, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, that's God the Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. So the big idea last week is to look at your life, to look at life in general through the throne of God. He's sovereign. He's the exalted king. He's in absolute control. All the forces that seem to be controlling your life are actually being directly and personally controlled by God. He's moving all of history to his glorious end. And if you're in Christ, your history's, your personal history is moving there as well. So we see this sea of glass. What could it mean? Well, first of all, understand there's, this is temple imagery. Temple is the place where the power and the presence of God resided locally for the people of God in Israel. So it would make sense that this imagery shows up in the throne room. Uh, so that's there. Uh, and wh where does this happen? Well, in 1 Kings verse, chapter 7, verse 23, we see in Solomon's temple, go check it, uh, there was this major basin that held like 10,000 gallons of water, and it was like a sea. And the priests would use it to do ritual washing beforehand. So maybe it's just that. Secondly, it, it probably means, and pro tip, in Revelations, we can have layered imagery on one image. It's okay. It's the way apocalyptic literature works. I can say that word. So it could be just the temple aspect, but there's probably something more at play. Remember, in ancient Near East literature, the sea is a killer, and it's where all the unknowns of life reside. And so when you see the sea of glass, God is tamed the chaos, and stilled it. And he's bringing all of history to that complete and glorious end where everything is subdued by him through his redeemer and through the church. And so it's still. You can walk on it like Jesus. It's done. There's no chaos here. And lastly, you can see through it. It's crystal. So John, get the image here. John is, don't forget what's happening. John can look through the throne room to this glass bottom and you can see. It's like having box seats. Like if you're down like on the sideline, you really can't tell what's going on many times. But when you're up, you're like, oh, I can see. Oh, that's not going to work out. Oh, no, he missed his coverage. And like, oh. You have a point to look at God working all of history. So there's this glass. There's this transparency to this sea. So the Apostle John gets to see how creation responds to what God is doing and how God responds to what creation does. Okay, that was important. We're going to come back to this, but you need to see, man, God is stilling that water. He's bringing the chaos to an end. Now, you know what you really want to know in here, don't you? What are those creatures? They got wings, they got eyes, they're singing. Okay, they're angels. So when you think of an angel, what do you think of? You think of this? A bored baby. Right? Love art. And that probably in some way captures the innocence or the purity of angels. But you're seeing an angelic being created by God, and it's very confusing to us. It's not a bored baby, is it? So one of the tricks of Revelation is we always think we're seeing something novel. No, these are all over Scripture. They're like mosquitoes in Florida. They're everywhere. So let's take a quick tour of, to understand what we're seeing. The first place we see them is right off in the beginning of the Bible. 
Everything's in the beginning of the Bible. The first three chapters, everything. Go home and read it right now. It's, we see after Adam and Eve fall, God escorts them out of Eden, east of Eden, and says, you got to go. Like, if you're going to be God, then you can't be here. And he escorts them out. It was an act of grace and mercy. And he puts a cherubim at the gate of Eden with a flaming sword. Oh, so that's what an angel is? I don't know. It's the same thing. And then we see the angel show up in the tabernacle. When they make the tabernacle, there's cherubim woven into the curtain. There's, there's the mercy seat, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you see these two cherubim who are kind of reaching out and bowing their heads, it seems like, and their wings are touching. And they're over the mercy seat. And this is where God comes down when the incense is there to cover him. And he meets with the high priest in Israel once per year and makes atonement for their sin. And, and it's just, it's glorious. And, the, and they're there. Okay. And then in Solomon's temple, they're even bigger. In Solomon's temple, what's pretty glorious, these cherubim are now like on the sides of the ark, and they're like 15 feet tall, and their wingspan's like 15 feet. And then they show up so many places. Um, Ezekiel, they show up in Ezekiel. Remember I told you we're, gonna, we're never going to stop going to Ezekiel? Right here, chapter 1, verse 5, and in the midst of, of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They were like human. They had four faces and four wings. Verse 10, and as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. And the four had a face of a lion on the right side, and the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of angels, and, or an eagle. And their wings were spread out, and they were loud. They seem a little different, but they seem very similar. Hmm. These friends are not new. Isaiah sees them in chapter 6 when God calls them. He sees these things flying around, and they're noisy, and there's lightning, and they're intense, and they're terrifying. So these are seraphim. Let's just let's name them. Seraph in Hebrew means fire, fiery one. These creatures are called fiery ones. They seem to be in the presence of God. They fly. They're powerful. They seem to have something to do with God's judgment and also God's mercy. But what you need to ask right now is what are they doing here? Here's what they're doing here. Remember, imagery matters. They represent the whole entire created order. Everything that you can see, they represent it. One has a face like a lion, representing everything that is wild, a wild beast. One has a face like an ox. In the ancient Near East, the ox was, was how things got done. So they represent all domesticated creatures and everything that goes under that and through that. And the next was like a fate, had a likeness, right? He said, it kind of looked like a man. There's something about it that's like a man. So mankind, king and queen of creation, image bearers, oversaw all of creation. And the last one was like an eagle in flight. And this speaks to my heart. Aviators, right? Just kidding. 
something about the eagle. I mean, birds are really small, but they can do things that nobody else can do. The entire created order is represented by these seraphim. So you need to take your cues from them. You need to look at this and respond how they're responding to the glory of God. Because how they're doing it is absolutely right. How the seraphim are responding to God's localized, powerful presence is how all of creation is supposed to respond to God's presence. Friends, you are never going to lose that stinging sense of longing and emptiness until you understand that you as a creature, as a creature can find any kind of fullness in anything but God himself, your creator. If you don't come to terms with that, well, it's bad. You need to understand that. You need to look at these creatures and say, the way they respond to the face of God is how I, as a creature, need to respond. Do you see that? It's actually very great. It's beautiful. It's such a grace that God has put this in it, and Jesus shows it to him right off the gate, right? Entire created order. And a couple things about them. They have eyes all over the wings. What does that mean? Well, there's a couple things that it could mean. It could mean that they represent God and therefore they see everything. I, I don't think that's what it means. I think they represent the created order. They see everything in creation and, when, and they see it rightly and soberly and they turn it back on God and praise him for it. What they see and what they perceive in complete sobriety, they praise God for. So, are you trembling before the face of God? Well, I don't, I've never seen the face of God. Have you ever looked at a blade of grass or your own ear? Does that bother you? You can't give an answer for it, friend, because it was created by your creator. And you've actually been put in charge of it. Earth Day, as for a Christian, every day is Earth Day. That's how it started. You should work and keep it. This is, this is a not, every day is Earth Day. Okay, so they represent the entire created order. So as we move through this and we get to what the elders are doing, do you, are you seeking fullness in the face of God? Do you see creation around you? And even though there's a lot of pain and destruction and there's a lot of bad stuff, are you responding with worship? Is it making you pivot and face the throne and praise God publicly for his goodness, his power, his glory, his mercy, his justness? You're designed for that. You're designed for that. This is where creation finds fullness in the face of God. So how should we respond? Let's get to specifics. How should we respond to the song of the seraphim? Well, let's see. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. It's a play on words because the living creatures are living, but they're not living forever and ever. They come from the throne. They come from God. They're creatures. They're created so these elders bow down and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne of God, saying, 
worthy. Key word. Revelation turns on that word. And next week you're going to see what that word actually means. We're not going to get to the fullness of it yet. But these elders are saying, worthy are you, our God. Not just holy, holy, holy is, is the Lord. No, no. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, relational to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. These elders seem to be taking their cue from these seraphim and responding to what they're saying by, by adding their own song. So you have like creation, praising God, and then you have, let's just call it the new creation. These 24 elders wouldn't be around the throne without God's direct work of a redeemer, the blood of the lamb. Remember, they probably represent 12 and 12, great unified diversity. The 12 tribes of Israel around the throne with the 12 apostles, all of God's redeemed people for all time represented before the face of God, it's creation, the seraphim, teaching the new creation how to handle worship. And the 24 elders are on their face. So is Isaiah. So is Ezekiel. And they worship him. So that's the second movement here. Why, why do we respond to God this way? Because he created everything. That just sounds so basic, doesn't it? Have you ever created anything? Oh, well, I made a table once. Did you, can you make a tree? Then we'll talk. Can you, make an, can you force matter to come from nothing? That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about here. So these elders, based on what these seraphim are doing, have intense spiritual sobriety. If you've ever been drunk, your body responds, doesn't it? You start to slur your speech and you say things that you don't mean. And maybe you say things that you do mean. And maybe, you, maybe you're a little bit unsteady. And maybe you pass out. But the point is your body isn't in line with your soul and heart, really. You, you think it's a great escape, but it's actually separating you. So this is great spiritual sobriety. All these eyes have seen what is true and good and real, and the elders are responding to it. And what happens is their body worships God. Don't miss this. Face to the ground, hand on the head, crown off my head. It's not really mine. I didn't earn it. To, to the exalted king. And they sing a song with their mouth, which is their body. And they're going to say, hey, not only is he holy, he's worthy. I'm not going to really go into that because next week. But I will say this. To receive glory and honor and power, does, God, does Jesus need power? That's, isn't that weird? Somebody shake their head. That's weird, right? Maybe it's that they're using their entire life to give glory to God. I think it's this. You don't give, this is written to a church that has no power and is losing it by the minute. If you're going to give away the power that you have, you give it to one who's glorious and safe. Jesus has proven himself by what he's done, taken on sin, purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and made them his people, his new creation. Give your power to him. Everything you have, he's earned it, and it's safe. It's glorious. Give him your power. He doesn't need it, right? You're not empowering him. You're giving, you're submitting to him. 
Okay. So um, this is, what you see happening here is probably an antiphony. I learn new words all the time. It's responsive singing. So you see the seraphim, which are everywhere, singing, and the elders respond to it. We're going to do it right now. All right? So let's practice. for. I want you to get a sense for what it's like in this throne room to hear the call and the response. So the call is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's actually Jesus' name right off in the front of Revelation. You guys are seraphim. Can you handle that? Sweet. All right. You guys over here are 24 elders. So you would say, in response to that, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So call response. You guys are the C. You just sit there and be still. <laughs> just kidding. You can say both of them. Right? <laughs> the introverts are like, thank God. All right, so let's do this together. Over here. Ready? Let's go. One, two, three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Great. Response. Worthy are you, Lord and God. That's how it would really go if we were there. We would stumble on it. It's disorienting. It's beautiful and it's powerful. This is how we're meant to respond to the fact that God, everything you know and see and understand and don't understand is from God and it's for God and it's moving back to God. So if you're going to set up a reality or a universe on your own, it's going to end badly right? Badly. God created all things. There's a woman by the name of Sarah Sylviander, kind of a fan of hers. She did not grow up as a believer. She's an astrophysicist. She got her doctorate, I believe, at UT Austin. And during her time of studying, she became a deist because she said, it's so obvious. She's like, Jack, we're crazy. If we, like, this is so obvious. There is an incredibly synchronous relationship between all matter and things we can't even see. She's like, it's, and that became very intriguing to her. And she became a Christian. She became a believer. Now, she's not a theologian, but she's an astrophysicist. So she understands space and time better than all of us ever will. And she was giving a lecture. And one kid said, hey, if you're a Christian and you believe all this stuff, help me understand this. Because you say, you know, right? And he said in Hebrews 1, it says that God upholds the universe by the word of his power, that being Jesus. So how much energy would that take? She's like, I first thought that was a silly question, but then I did the math. She said, the universe is expanding. We can see it. Uh, the observable universe is expanding. So if we, if we take what we can see and do the math, she came up with, good grief, um, ten, uh, the equivalent output to keep the world from 
collapsing in on itself to hold its shape and to continue to expand at the rate it's expanding is five times 10 to the 45th power of nuclear plants per second. And she said that's probably grossly inaccurate on the downside. Friends, you don't know who you're dealing with. You were created by a God and for a God. It has incredible power. And we live in awe of our phones and of our social media and of relationships. All those things can be good if you're worshiping God, if you're living in awe of him, okay? Living in awe of him. So what do we do with that? I think it's very clear that the text gives us this call today. This is where we land this, and it's, I don't even know how to explain it, to be honest with you, sorry. You are designed to live for God's glory. Said another way, live to give God glory. That's it, live to give him glory. How? Well, I don't know, here's two ways. First, live in awe of his glory. Live in awe of it. And secondly, live as evidence of his glory. Well, I'm not a very glorious person. Well, you kind of are. Nobody could make you the way you are made. And as we understand scripture, you are an image bearer of the living God. So like those crystalline structures in the throne room, you were made to refract and reflect the power and the glory and the brilliance of God to all of creation. That's what it means to be a person, whether you wanted it or not. This is who you are. So this is our call. And if that feels like too much for you, good, it is. Because scripture is very clear. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God, meaning that we set up something less than God to be glorious in life. And we actually want to be seen as glorious. And we want, we want to get our worth from being glorious. And we worship the, crea the, the creation. We worship money and things and status and sex and just fill in the blank. Whatever makes it work for you right now to find some peace and to find some significance. That is falling short of God's glory. That's not worshiping God's glory. That's not taking your cue from the angelic beings, which are stickered up for you so you can see who they are. But it goes on. It says that we're justified freely by his grace because Jesus was put forward as a propitiation, right? Jesus doesn't save worthy people. If you're wondering, I'm gonna live my life in a worthy way and you'll see, no, you won't and neither will I. Jesus doesn't save worthy people. He saves unworthy people and that's why we call him worthy. And if you're just like, what do you mean? You can trust Jesus now and be in the throne room, just as Pastor Johnny Reeve said. He's in his people and is among his people. Pray, meditate on his word, you'll feel his presence. Look hard, you'll see him in his creation and here. So live to give God glory. 
Start to curate what you put in front of your face. Start to curate what you see. Slow down and enjoy the evidence of God's glory. Let the things you see point you to the throne of God. That's what they're meant to do. Choose to praise God and live as evidence. Right? You, friend, you are a wondrous thing that God has created, male and female. So how you treat other people will betray whether you see your God is holy or not. What do you mean treat other people? I thought of one example. The way we shop and drive. We treat people like they're less than us and they're there to serve us. Man, they got souls and stories too, right? A society's known by how they treat those who have the least amount of power. The best thing you can do is cast your crown because you are not queen and you are not king, right? That's, we get to give glory. Jesus earned this for us. And it doesn't, it feels too heavy on your head because it's not yours. But he put it there, yeah, but he conquered for us. So this is how it starts. This is how Revelation starts. It's beautiful and powerful. So here's one thing you should do today. Slow down. Go on a walk with a little kid. It'll make, all of this will make sense. Listen to what they say. You might learn something and you might have a chance to worship. Do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. Um, Lord, we are unworthy. We know that. But you, we are so important to you, God. We are such a big deal to you. And that just blows my mind. We are such a big deal to you. Not because we're big deals, but because you love us. And you don't give us your reasoning. I pray that we would be so awestruck by being new creations in Christ. We'd be so awestruck by the creation we get to live in that we will never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is our Lord God Almighty. Let us live as your evidence. In the name of Jesus, amen.